media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Matthew. We're going to be traveling pretty fast, looking at a lot of different ones. As I said last week, um, even though we're expository preachers and usually we go kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, in this series, we've been kind of doing something a little bit different as we've talked about um, uh, the pathway to the cross. We've been looking at a lot of different scripture and the connection that they have together. I have a question for you this morning. How many of you have at least in the back of your mind, if not in the front of your mind, and part of your bucket list, your agenda for life, want to travel across America, maybe in an RV or something like that? How many have ever thought about that? You know, it's just, you know, that's kind of an exciting thing. We love travel. We, we love, uh, you know, just getting out there and we've been able to travel across a, a lot of, uh, you know, America, but we, there's a lot of places we haven't seen. Uh, we've certainly seen, I think, more than half of the states, but there's a lot that's left there. And have you ever wondered about what it would like just to start in Georgia and kind of go all the way to the West Coast? And when you did that, uh, one of the biggest questions is, okay, what spots do we hit? You know, and there's a lot of different methodologies that you could use there. One would be, okay, we want to get a little piece of every 50 states. You know, we want to be able to say that we've been in all 50 states. Somebody else would say, well, we're going to do as many national parks as we can. And we're going to travel and our agenda is going to be hit as many national parks. Somebody else would say, okay, we want to go to places of historical significance. Like we want to see Gettysburg and we want to see battlefields and we want to see these other places that were just part of our nation's past. You can have a lot of different agendas of how to do this trip across America. And uh, depending on what kind of pattern you want it, what kind of methodology that you chose would determine your path. Well, that's kind of like what I had to do a couple of weeks ago when I'm going, this pathway to the cross, how in the world do we in five weeks go from the beginning all the way to the cross and eventually on Easter Sunday morning, the resurrection? Because there's no way that we can take the entirety of this Bible and that we can cover it in four or five weeks. And so the first week we looked at our need for a Savior. We looked in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 about how Adam and Eve rebelled against the commandments of God and, and they trusted themselves instead of God's wisdom and His way. And they fell what we call the fall. Sin came upon mankind. And we saw that there's presented a need for a savior and God had an immediate response. Then in chapter three, he says that there one day this promise, this gospel, this good news that Satan was going to be defeated. Uh, last week we looked at the prophecies of the savior, how over 300 prophecies in the old Testament and how Christ fulfilled every one of those and how just numerically there's no way that could happen. Just the, you know, the extreme impossibilities except that God was right in the midst of it and he fulfilled every one of those 300 plus prophecies in the work of Jesus Christ. And so we talked about the prophecies of the Savior. Now this morning, the next logical step would be the New Testament and we see the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, and eventually the the, the death of Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be going really, really quick. And the way that we're going to look at this is um, kind of like that trip across America where you have to kind of pick your points uh, this morning, we're going to look at the encounters that Jesus had with several people in the New Testament, uh, from his birth all the way to his ministry. And we're going to just pick a few. Now, again, he had hundreds, 
thousands of encounters with people. And yet, this morning I want to focus on really a question that we find in the familiar story to some of that Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was in one of his uh, five different fake trials. Uh, I say fake trials because uh, he was innocent, and yet they put him into these trials. And that famous line that Pontius Pilate reports back after he has tried to wash his hands of being responsible in that uh, event, and he says this in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-two. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? I would challenge that that's the most important question that you and I could ever entertain in our, our life. That we know for a fact that Jesus Christ was a historical person. You may not have saving faith in what he did. You may thought, think that he's just a great teacher, that he was like one of many other rabbis or somebody else that kind of had a, a mindset to, to make something of himself, and yet he really wasn't that. You, you can have a lot of different thoughts about that, but you have to entertain it. In the same way that we have to entertain, in a, from a historical perspective, George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. History says that they truly were there. Now we look at the claims that they make. Jesus Christ said this about himself. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father. That is, nobody is made right with this holy God except through me and the work that he has. Not good works, not just good efforts, not good wishes. He said, no, you have to come through the work that I've done. And so somewhere in your life and in my life, we have to either say, yes, I believe that he truly was the son of the living God. He was savior of the world, and I place all of my trust in what he said. Or are we put it on a shelf somewhere else? Good teacher. Not much more than this person or that person. Historical figure that kind of wanted to be famous, but he really wasn't the son of God, and maybe he was even a little bit delusional. Somewhere you have to deal with it. And so I would challenge you this morning that the question that Pilate puts before us, even though he's not coming from a, uh, a really trained spiritual perspective, it's not that dissimilar than the question that Jesus himself had when he addressed his disciples. There was a time in the the disciples, in the ministry of Christ, where the disciples were gathered around Jesus, and a lot of people were leaving the ministry of Christ. If you go back and look at the New Testament, do you realize that more people left the ministry of Christ than followed the ministry of Christ? I mean, we always think that Jesus, if he's in control, everybody's just naturally kind of following him. No, there were more that turned away from him that followed him. In one of those days, after there had been some challenge in the ministry there, he's got the disciples around them, and and in Matthew chapter 16, he begins to talk to them, and he says, Who do you say that I am? If you think back, Peter is always the first of the disciples just about to, to talk in this, one of the few times that Peter actually didn't put his foot in his mouth. And in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Polly's question, Jesus' question, I see a lot of similarity there. And that each one of us have to come to a determination in our heart and our life as who do we really believe that this historical Jesus is? Is he truly the Son of the living God? Is he truly the only way that we can have peace with the Holy God in that we have sinned and we're, we don't have ho- a holiness of our own. And as we entertain that question, we will have a determination of where we will place faith in our life. 
we will place faith in, hey, I, I was in church every Sunday and, or, you know, they dunked me and I got wed, I got baptized, or, or I said this prayer. Uh, somewhere we're going to make a determination in our own mind, in our own heart of what we believe, our own personal theology about is there eternal life? Is there a God? And if there is a God, how do you get right with this God? You might say, well, Bobby, that's a, that's a lot of power to have. No, this is the personal choice that, that each one of you have of coming into determination. Most important question that you'll ever entertain in your mind or heart. Who is this Christ? Who, who do we say that he is? Or as Pilate put it, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Let's pray this morning. Father, Will you help us to absorb that, Father? Maybe we have some folks here this morning that they've been walking with you 40, 50, 60 years. And Father, they answered this question long, long ago. Father, will you renew within them, Father, just a, a, a faith and, Father, a vibrancy, a passion for this confession that you have sent your Son and your Son was the Redeemer of the world. Father, maybe some are here today and, and Father, they're new to the faith. And Father, at one moment, they, they kind of have great faith and the next moment, all these questions come into their mind. Father, will you give them clarity through your word this morning? And Father, perhaps we have people here that this morning that they've never truly, truly weighed the fullness of that question in their life. They have a general belief that, that there's a God and a general belief that Maybe after we die, we, we go to, to a place called heaven. And yet, Father, they, besides just having a general thought, they don't know why they believe. Father, will you work in their minds and their hearts through your scripture, through your spirit today, to bring understanding. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that we can pray this in his name. Father, not just throwing a name out there, but what it represents, his work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Amen. And so we're going to be focusing this morning on a couple of different stops along the way on this pathway to the cross. The first stop is going to be the encounters of Christ concerning his birth. Uh, now, theologically, I, I hope that you know. If you don't, then this will be a great uh, kind of theological uh, truth to put there in your mind. Christ has always existed. Christ is not a created being. The whole Trinity, God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been. They are eternal in nature. And yet there was a time when Christ took on flesh. We call that the incarnation. When Christ came and clothed himself, and then just as we sing this morning, was human. And the Bible says in Hebrews that he was human in every way, that he faced everything that you and I face because he truly wanted to be, to be that sacrifice and, and to be a great high priest that he would know everything that you and I go through. Except there was one exception. You and I go through life and all of life's challenges with ups and downs and victories and losses. And Christ never sinned. He never disobeyed the Father. He was consistent from birth all the way to his death and resurrection without sin. And so while he was fully human, that's the one thing that he did not do that you and I, unfortunately, honestly, probably do about every day. Is that there's this measure of disobedience. Even after we're a Christian, a measure of wanting to live for ourselves. 
But when he was born there, and we see that uh, and that familiar story of Luke chapter 2, he comes, and the first encounter that we really see Christ having, or that God introducing the news to, is a bunch of shepherds. And again, I don't know that we can really place shepherding uh, in our social class of where that would fall, but in that society, it was pretty much the bottom rung. And they were outcast. Some of them chose shepherds because they wanted to be away from society. But these were the least likely people that you would really uh, kind of think of spiritual people. In fact, just the nature of their job sometimes kept them from going to the temple and, and having a religious life within the system that they had. And, and so these were probably the least likely, if you just had a thousand choices, who God was going to announce the birth of Christ to, the shepherds would have been pretty much the bottom rung, either number 1,000 or number 999. That's where they would have been. And yet look what happens, Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And the angels said to them, that is, the shepherds that were there, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of uh, in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so these outcast shepherds, are, are they make their way to Bethlehem. They respond to what the angels said. Uh, they were kind of fearful. You can imagine if you're out there in the middle of the night, you're just doing your job, and all of a sudden the, the sky lights up and you hear voices from heaven. That's pretty intimidating. And yet in faith, they respond. And they travel to Bethlehem. And they find this baby just as the angel had said, uh, laying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. And look at their reaction as we would read down in Luke chapter 2 a little bit of this uh, of this Savior coming. Luke 2, 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Their first response hearing that God had an answer for sin is one of joy. They're, they're glorifying, they're, they're praising God for that. But not everybody in that original Christmas story was real pleased with these events. Not everybody is real happy that supposedly this king had been born. There was an appointed king for that region at the time. His name was King Herod. He was a Jew, and at least in theory, he should have been waiting for this promised Messiah. But in reality, King Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his own authority. I mean, when you're the king, and all of a sudden you hear that another king is being born, what's the natural response that you would have? And so he's not real happy about it. As the story goes, as we would read through that account, and now we're back in Matthew, or we're going to go over to Matthew, and we see the story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Okay, they've come. Uh, the familiar story of the Magi coming, and they come, and they're looking for a king. Now, you might imagine that this was a little threatening again to King Herod. He, he didn't want to be replaced as king. I think when you're king, you kind of like being king. And so all of a sudden, there's a threat. And yet he, he veils himself pretty quickly and he says, oh, I'm interested in knowing where this king is. And he tells the wise men, this magi, these three that come, and he says, look, if you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. 
We read later that that's not his motive whatsoever. His motive is to get rid of this threat to his kingship. Now, now we begin to look and we begin to read and Matthew 2, 8, it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring him, uh, bring me word that I too may go and worship. But what actually happens? The word gets out. God warns Mary and Joseph. And they flee to Egypt. They take Jesus. And look what happens back there in and around Jerusalem. Matthew two sixteen. Then Herod... When he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men because they didn't come back, they had been warned also by the Holy Spirit not to come back and, and report to the king. It says, when they found out that they'd been tricked by the wise men, they beca- he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had certain from the wise man. Now let's take a pause and a breath right there. One event the coming of Christ. One is revealed to these lowly shepherds that this is your hope. This is the answer to your sin. This is the how you, even though you're shepherds, even in a social scheme, you're kind of the low person on the totem pole. This is how you can know personally, holy God, and be right with that God. This other person, King Herod, kind of the top of the social standing, if you want to say, all of a sudden he feels threatened. And that threat could be from political. Okay, he doesn't want another king. He doesn't want to lose his position. But what we really see is he doesn't want to lose his own authority. I don't know how many of you identify with King Herod. We want to be like those shepherds. We want to go see Jesus and we want to come away just worshiping and praising. But have you, has it ever crossed your mind that becoming a Christian and truly living the Christ life may cost you some of your own authority? I mean, if you've ever thought that, then you are biblically thinking correctly. (laughs) Because he says, lay down your life. We just sang about that in two of the three songs this morning, about laying down our own authority, taking up our cross daily and dying to self. At the really core of what does the Christian life look like? Not how do we become a Christian. That's the work of Christ and Christ alone. But what does the Christian life look like in response to our salvation? His daily death to ourself and wanting God's way rather than our own way. I mean, I think there's a little bit of that shepherd in us that we see the offering of Christ and we rejoice. But being very honest, there's a part of Bobby at least that looks at King Herod and says, man, I can relate. Because if I'm going to have a new king in my life, it means that I'm not king anymore. I don't know about you, but there's certain areas of your life, my life, that we kind of enjoy being king, the authority. So this is where we begin to see this challenge. We begin to see here this dramatic difference in response to Jesus. It goes back to the question that Jesus posed to Peter and the disciples. But who do you say that I am? Am I the king? Am I the, am I the savior? Do you understand that I'm truly God in the flesh and therefore you lay down your life, you give up your own rights so that you can follow me and that the very Spirit of God can live through you? What a pertinent question. What a pertinent thing to ponder this morning. That's the first stop. Second stop today is the three-year ministry of Christ. 
So we're moving pretty fast. His birth, and now we're in his ministry. And we begin to see that Jesus did interact with, and he encountered thousands of people. But let's stop and, and just look at two of those this morning. The first seems to be the most likely candidate to follow Jesus. You, you may know him as a name that we see in some translations of the Bible, the rich young ruler. He, he would have been the one that if, you know, if he was your neighbor, you would have gone, hey, I go to church at so-and-so, why don't you, if you don't have a church, come with me. He would have been one of those that you would have been proud to invite to church. He wouldn't have been one of those that you were kind of scared going, okay, I just don't know how he's going to act if he gets in church. What will people think? This guy from the outside had a shiny exterior. Just the description, rich, young, ruler. How many of you does that kind of have a human appeal to? Rich, young, and ruler. Authority. I wouldn't mind trying it on for size. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, society puts a star by this guy. He, he would be an influencer. And yet what happens? This picture of success. He encounters Christ. And, and, and actually, he's the one that encounters Christ first. He can kind of, by, by what we see in Matthew nineteen sixteen, he's the one that asks Jesus a question. Look at the question that he asked. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher. Okay, he's giving some, you know, relevance to the authority of Christ by calling him teacher, rabbi. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Relevant question? Yes. Very relevant question. To ponder eternal life? Now, he may phrase it differently because you're going, okay, Bobby, theologically, you can't do a good deed enough. You can do it that. Okay, well, we realize that there's a failure in the question, but just the, the general nature of the question, is that a good thing to ponder for you and I? Well, what do I do to, to truly, if there is an eternal life, what do I do to get there? Well, I have to fill out a form? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to be good? More good than bad? And he asked a very honest question. The problem is that he didn't write the right answer. Jesus keeps on telling him about the commandments. And the response from the rich young ruler, I've done all of these from birth. No, he hadn't. He was no more perfect than you or I. Maybe he was a little bit better in a human scale of goodness. Who knows? But he wasn't perfect. The Bible makes it very clear that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And this rich young ruler, this influencer, was no different. And yet, in his own mind, he didn't see his sin. He saw his goodness. He said, I've kept all these commandments from, from birth. And so Jesus keeps on responding back to him. And, and then in verse 21, look what he says. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you think you're perfect, you'd never sin, okay? Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, real quick, guys, let's keep our theology really solid. Is Jesus saying, if we go and sell everything that we have, that we get to go, we get a ticket from, to heaven? No. We can't buy our way. I don't care if you're Bill Gates. I don't care if you're the richest man in the world. We can't buy our way. What is Jesus trying to do then? 
He's trying to point out since this guy's mind frame is that he's kept the commandments. He says, okay, if you would be perfect, if you think you're perfect, then do this. If you want to go to heaven, do this. Jesus isn't trying to teach bad theology. What he's trying to teach is reach into this mind and this heart of this man. Show him what his need is. Because how does this man respond? Look what it says in verse 22. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He may have been rich and young and a ruler and an influencer, but he found out that there was something, a level of commitment, a level of understanding that he was holding back from Christ. Christ was wise enough to, to, to point that out. And so he walks away sorrowful. I've always thought it was interesting that Christ doesn't stop him halfway as he's walking away and go, wait, 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 did I say all? I meant 75%. You can, you can keep a token amount, 25% of your riches. That would be enough to live a good life on. There was no bargaining here. Which the last thing that you and I are ever in the position to do is the bargain with God on the conditions of being right with his holiness. The good thing is, while you and I are not in a bargaining position to ever say, okay, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. The great thing is that God has already, through his son Jesus Christ, made all provisions for you and I to be right with him. We don't have to bargain. We have the opportunity to simply, by faith, trust in who Christ is and put our faith in that. And then that makes us right with the Holy God. Not what we could do, but put a faith in what Christ has already done. It's a lot easier, I mean, a, a lot more direct and simple than trying to bargain with God. And yet, I say that, and how many of the times have we tried to bargain with God? It may not have been over salvation, but it certainly was over family conditions, financial conditions. God, just, I'll do this, this, and this if you just kind of save my marriage. Maybe, maybe that is a great motivation for you want to save your marriage, and yet... Even there, do we just bargain with God? Trade this for that? No, he's made every provision for us through Christ Jesus. On one hand, once Jesus was confronted by uh, uh, this, he, he addresses this man right where this man lived. He doesn't have one general answer. I don't know that that answer in this conversation would have been appropriate with other people, but it was appropriate for the rich young ruler because that's where his mind and his heart was. Isn't that wonderful that God sees you as an individual? That there's not just this one phrase and God says, okay, here's the one phrase for all of humanity. That in these counters that, that Christ has, that he deals with each one kind of in a different way and he deals with them in their heart, in their mind, and where they are. Do you ever get tired of being just treated like a number? Given a generic answer? Right now, many of you are aware that, you know, with my mom, we're kind of going through and the medical system and all that kind of stuff. And if there's one place that you feel kind of like a number sometimes, it's in the, the mass of, you know, all the, the structures of insurance and this and Social Security and all those kind of things. You're just kind of lumped into this big old pile there. 
the other day was able to talk to a social worker and, and she was talking about my mom and our needs. And I was going, you're a hero. Because all of a sudden, everything that was just kind of generic in a number got to, what do you think your mom is going to need? Does that, can you relate to that? That all of a sudden, when somebody sees your personal need, and I want you to know that why we're all sinners, and in that way we are generic, none have truly walked the righteous life. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know that I believe with all my heart, and I can show you verse after verse, how Christ deals with us personally. How amazing that Creator God not only knows you by name, knows the number of hairs on your head, but that as he deals with you, he deals with you in a personal way. And doesn't throw you into this generic pool of sinners. But he knows everything about your life. Christ goes on in his ministry. and Actually, we're going to have to go back to Matthew 8. So it could have happened before. Uh, not all the, the Gospels are... Uh, chronological in nature, but we do see Jesus confronting another man and, and where the rich young ruler was maybe the most likely candidate for salvation. This guy is the least likely candidate for salvation. Why? Because number one, he's not Jewish. And that would have been key in that environment. That thing, he was the enemy of the Jews. He was Roman. And to make it worse, he was a Roman centurion. So, you know, if you start to call off, you know, the bad list, he, he pretty much checks every one of those boxes. Sworn enemies of the Jewish people, that you were Roman, and then that you had Roman authority, that you were a soldier. I imagine that almost every family could tell stories about how, you know, the Roman soldiers had done something to their family, robbed them of some of their freedoms. The least likely person that day to show any kind of faith in Christ. And yet, look what happens. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 and 6. And when he, that is Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. And again, this is him going to Jesus. said, Lord, he recognizes authority. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering, suffering terribly. He comes to Jesus and he's asking for help for his servant, not even for himself. And, and Jesus responds to his need. Look what happens, verse 8 and 9. But the centurion replied, Lord, uh, or Jesus says, okay, I'm going to heal your servant. I'll, I'll come to your home and heal your servant. And look at the response of the centurion when he hears that Jesus is willing to come to his house and heal this guy. His very request, verse 8 and 9. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Is that a measure of faith? It's a measure of great faith. Then he uses this word Lord, person of authority. Does he see him as the Savior of the world? Uh, We don't know. But he realizes that he's the source of miracles. He's heard about the miracles. And even though he's Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, and he's a Roman, this usually would not be a good mix. He comes and he says, can, can you help my servant? Well, I'll, I'll come to your home and I'll him. No, Jesus, you don't need, you don't need to come into my house. 
I'm not worthy. There's a humility there. And humbleness that, that takes over. When you watch old movies of Roman centurions, is humility the first characteristic that comes to your mind? No, in order to have authority over your men, you had to be the tough guy. And yet in this encounter with Jesus, he shows faith by even coming and approaching. Hey, I have heard that you've done other miracles. Can you possibly heal my servant? I'll come to your house and I'll do that. No, you can't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. But if you just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Verse 9, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And if I say go, he goes. And another one come, and he comes. And to my servant do this, and he does it. He shows an understanding of rank. An understanding of position. An understanding of authority. And has he placed himself? We don't know if it's salvation or not, but do, has he placed himself under the authority of Jesus Christ at this point? Yes. His faith in that Christ has that ability. And I love Jesus' response in verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Christ goes on and says, I haven't seen this great of faith among the Jewish people. And here this Roman centurion. Do you see a pattern here? That there's a lot of people that maybe in our mind we're going, okay, they're likely candidates to kind of be the good people and follow God. And yet what we see continually throughout the Gospels, it is the leper, it is this person, it's the, the prostitute woman, it's the, the, the lady at the, at the well. All these people that have no social standing whatsoever, and yet Christ reaches them individually, gives them hope for their life. And the ones that think much of themselves, like a lot of the Jewish establishment and the chief priest, he has to have pretty stern words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. There's a twist here, guys. Is it just that Jesus is kind of like the spiritual Robin Hood? And he kind of robs from the rich and gives to the poor? No. Jesus looks at the heart and the mind. He sees the need, and as he offers to meet that need, he responds. What will you do with this Christ? Or as Jesus said it to Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? Some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist, kind of coming back to life, a a, a prophet. do you say that Jesus is? Because there's not a generic answer to that. It's a personal answer. Because Jesus has not dealt with us generically. He's dealt with us personally. One last stop along this path to the cross for this morning. Turn over to Matthew 27. By this time, the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate because they have no authority to kill Jesus on their own. They can convict him in their own kind of courts, but they cannot demand uh, uh, for him to be crucified. They can't take his life. The Roman authorities have to do that. So so he, he has five different trials, and 
One of those trials is with Pontius Pilate, and he comes before them. Pilate doesn't want really to deal with Jesus. It's, it's a, a hassle to him. It's a political dead move, no matter what he does. And so he wants to avoid it, and he tries to avoid it. And so he's questioning Jesus, and, and as he questions Jesus, Jesus doesn't respond. The only response that Jesus really has is, is uh, are, y'all the, are you the Christ? And that's what people are saying. And Jesus responds, you, you've said that. But when Pilate begins to bring the accusations against Jesus, just as it was prophesied, the, the lamb is silent. And how does Pilate respond to that? Look at verse 13 and 14. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He doesn't understand it. He's a political mind. You save yourself. You say whatever is that will save yourself. And, and Jesus, if you bring a defense, maybe that can turn the tide here. And he's amazed at the silence of Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Does amazement equal salvation? He's amazed. This is a different breed, this Jesus. Most people would be saying anything that they could to get out of this situation. And he's silent. He's amazed and yet he's not believing and changing his heart here. His pilot's not doing that. He tries to get out of the situation one time after another. Uh, he, the people are crying out. And, and there's this annual thing that they would do at the feast at that time of the year where they would release a prisoner. And so Pilate says, this is my escape. I, I don't want to deal with this. I have to deal with it. It's right here. It's on my agenda for the day. I have to make a decision one way or the other. And he says, the, the most efficient way of dealing with this is that since we have to release one or we truly release one prisoner a year, I, I'm going to put Jesus up against the worst criminal that I can think of. Not somebody who had done a little street crime. No, the worst criminal that he could a man by the name of Barabbas. And so he puts that before them. Matthew twenty-seven seventeen. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? Do you notice that he keeps on connecting Jesus with Christ, even in his own verbiage? He thinks it's a slam dunk. Have you ever seen that commercial? I think it's an insurance commercial. And the little kid here, and little kid here, and Charles Barkley. So it's the easiest question to answer in the world. Who do you want on your basketball team? I'll take Charles Barkley. He's thinking it's that kind of a question. Do you want Jesus to be released, or do you want Barabbas, this notorious villain? And he's not prepared for the answer. In the meantime, there's kind of a pause to the setting, and somebody comes over and he whispers into Pilate's ear, and it's a message from Pilate's wife. And his wife says, I've had a dream. And this innocent man, you need to release him. You do not need to fool with this Jesus. So he's got this gut that he's already amazed at Christ. 
He's hearing this testimony. He's trying to get out of it. Now word comes from your wife, guys. Let this person go. And yet he's still trying to avoid it. He's done everything that he can to avoid it. And then we get this question. You know, he asked the crowd again, do you want Barabbas? Do you want this? They call out, you know, we want Barabbas to be freed. Well, then what do I do with this Christ? Verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Do you remember their response? Crucify him, crucify him. He's in a politically no-win situation. And in many ways, isn't that the, the, the choice of our own life this morning? Let me ask you a really honest question, guys. Does following Christ cost you something? Yes. And yet, just like King Herod, where you have to give up authority for your own life and die to self every day. Just like the rich young ruler, where you can't buy and you can't earn. And just like Pilate, when you feel yourself, oh my goodness, if I go this way, I kind of lose this influence. If I go over here, I, I may lose my eternal soul. You know, we're in those dilemmas ourselves. These are historical accuracies. And yet, isn't this the pondering that we do in our own heart and our own life? Who do you say that I am? Christ would ask us this day. Or to use Pilate's word, then what shall I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ? The most important decision in your life, and many of you have made that decision. I shared with you before, at 12 years old, in such infant faith, I mean, you're talking about childish faith. It was like, you know, if a child is a three-year-old, I'm like a three-day-old. And to be real honest with you, the, the time that I, I trusted Christ for my sake, I was just afraid of going to hell. I mean, truly, my response wasn't, oh, I want his lordship in my life. I just didn't want to go to hell, folks. God grew me and he began to say, my, Bobby, this isn't just about missing hell. And it's not just about getting a ticket to heaven. But Bobby, this is about, you get me. And in the years that it took for me to really understand that and, and, and how wonderful that was, God was patient and he was kind. I have no doubt that I, I trusted Christ at 12. I, I truly believe that if something would have happened to me, I would have got in that proverbial, you know, hit by a school bus thing. I, I would have been with heaven that, well, because I had full understanding, because I was mature in every way. No, because Christ had died for me. And in simple childlike faith, I said, I trust you. I see my sin and I see your provision. And I don't understand it all. I don't know the big theological words, but I place my faith in your provision, God. Folks, that's salvation. It doesn't come with big theological words. And so my question for you this morning, because I love you. Have you come to that time in your life? Have you, have you pondered that question that Christ asked Peter? Who do you say that I am? And not just used a, a, a word where well, you're, you're the Savior. 
Have you embraced that and all that it means, all that you can understand? Well, Bobby, I, I, I don't know these big words. I don't know all these things. In simple childlike faith, have you placed your trust in being right with a holy and righteous God by his provision, Jesus Christ? And in simple childlike faith, I trust that Christ died in my place, took on my sin, and gave me his righteousness. In that belief, my understanding of the gospel is that we become children of the living God. Most important question you'll ever be asked. Most important question you'll ever be entertaining in your heart, in your mind. And I pray this morning that you know the answer. If you don't, I'd love to talk with you after the service. We don't corner people. We don't take them off to a room. Uh, I'll buy you breakfast. I'll buy you lunch. I'll buy you breakfast and lunch. Because God wants you not to be dealt with in a generic way, but in a very personal way. Because that's the kind of God that we have. And so myself, the elders here, we would love to respond to you in a very personal way as you would have questions. Because it's the most important question that you'll ever be asked. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, Father. And Father, we skipped thousands of encounters that Christ had. But Father, I pray that as we looked at these particular encounters, we see that you truly have developed a pattern there, Father, of those that we would have said, oh man, they're great candidates. Father, because of their pride, because of their fear of what they would lose and their own authority, they walked away from Christ. And those, Father, that seemingly Christ would never have approached, Father, their lives were changed. So, Father, today, will you just work in our hearts and our minds? Will you help us to to personalize this question that Jesus gave to Peter? Would you help us to understand the weight of the question that Pontius Pilate gave? What then shall I do with this Jesus who's called the Christ? Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that we don't have to know big theological words in order to come into your family, but that the work is complete. And Father, help us just to have simple childlike faith in that this morning as we pray all this in the hope that is Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.